Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard, and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. My guest this week is Eliza Kerr from Yosemite, California. She has been leading people on adventures in the outdoors for more than 30 years in Tibet, Nepal, Alaska, Colorado, and Yosemite. She is a leading light, a climber, surfer, yogi, a guide, mom, and just an awesome soul. Her story is about a connection with the outdoors in both body and mind. It is about climbing, community, surfing, seeking, family, and so much more. She is also the co-founder of Balanced Rock, originally Wild Women Workshops, whose mission is to inspire health and well-being through deep connection to nature and spirit, through workshops, trips, and community programs. She is a certified Ayurveda specialist and practices Ayurvedic medicine in Yosemite. I have known Eliza for all of my life. She is a cousin, friend, and a soul sister to me. She has taught me a good deal about the journey of life. We grew up in Illinois and our mothers are sisters who are regarded for their own unique approaches to life, being in the outdoors, competing and advocating for conservation and nature. And their mother, our grandmother, was a force of nature herself. She had freckles and a tuft of curlish hair. She was known on a single day to dress as Lady Godiva on horseback, prepare corned beef hash, muck out horse stalls, skinny dip, dress for the symphony, sleep through the symphony, and eat chocolate before bed or in bed with a bowl of ice cream. I think of our grandmother as the mascot and the original inspiration to this podcast. What is it that happens when a woman flies, when a woman pursues her passion? Although she wasn't much to talk about hard things or the emotive dimensions of living through a depression, world war, raising three children, and the ups and downs of life, our grandmother did pursue her passions. She went to college and she had an unapologetic fervor and encouraged anyone around her to work hard, be competitive, and have fun. So here we go. Come along as Eliza shares her passions, her optimism, her wisdom, and commitment to make the world a better place in all forms. I would love to start with understanding how you got to California and UC Berkeley in the first place, given that suburban Illinois is not exactly a pipeline for that area. Growing up in Illinois is filled with really good people, but to seek adventure there, at least for me, was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, pretty much. I knew that wasn't really where I wanted to find adventure. So 
when it was time to fly the coop, I wanted to head to the Wild West, <laughs> the land of mountains and the ocean. Did you have an idea more specifically or just knew that that was where the adventure would lie? Was it anything about UC Berkeley? I mean, truth be told, as many adventures begin with, there was, of course, a boy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was like the quarterback senior. When I was a freshman, (laughs) he actually went to UC Santa Cruz. So I always held that in my mind's eye as the, the place to be. Thought I wanted to go there and then at the last minute was drawn to Berkeley. And so ended up there. Mm-hmm. And you um, went to Nepal in that time. I did a year abroad, my junior year in Nepal. I think I was seeking experience and understanding of all forms of spirituality and sustenance, like living at a level of sustenance and understanding the correlation between wealth, poverty, happiness, simplicity, and always had a special place for the mountains in my heart. So the Himalaya, of course, was a big draw as well. Hmm. And you studied there? Is that Was there a format for studying or what, was it as much about adventure? It was a lot about study. I, the first six months I was in a formal program and studying Nepali and homestay. And then my partner and I, we chose to do kind of like an independent study within that framework to try to hike overland from Nepal to Mount Kailash in Tibet. Hmm. And classic college kid style, totally ill-equipped to go over what's a pretty serious mountaineering endeavor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Instead, we chose to be appropriately dressed in our Tibetan wool skirts. And (laughs) needless to say, we didn't actually make it, but we had a really challenging and illuminating adventure meeting to lean on families we met along the way who helped us survive here. We thought we were experienced mountaineers and it's going to be no problem. But turns out winter, even in what isn't considered the high Himalaya, but just like the hill towns is pretty severe. Mm -hmm. Were you climbing there? Yeah. And then the last few months we went to Pakistan and we were doing some climbing, some mountaineering in Pakistan. Yeah. And that was near your graduation. Or, and then you moved to Yosemite after that? After college, again, my boyfriend and I hit the road in our van and traveled and climbed for a bit, ended up in Yosemite where we had spent a lot of time during college. So that was, we already felt like that was our home stomping ground and pulled out our interview outfit from the sealed Ziploc bag that was in the VW van and got ourselves a, a job teaching experiential education in Yosemite. And that was Yosemite Institute at that point? Yeah, that was Yosemite Institute. Yeah. That was really amazing organization, great community of people, good work. And back then in the 90s, the, the valley was different than it is now, no? 
yes and no. It's still a thing. Mm. Thank God it's still the Valley. Nothing could change that. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. And I mean, literally awesome in the true sense of the word as it always was and always will be. It's gotten a lot more crowded. It's it's being loved to death. Mm -hmm. So you have to find the right time and the right places to be able to experience it in a way without crowds now. Mm-hmm. But And you've been climbing there throughout this whole time. Have, have there been experiences that, I'm sure there have, of course there have, that sort of stand out as being ones that had an impact in terms of your approach to both the way you take on adventure and also the more and more the spiritual side that's inevitable up there? I always experienced fear. I'm not one of those people or one of those climbers who doesn't have to face fear a lot when I climb an adventure. And my first few years climbing, I mostly climbed with my boyfriend. He pushed me a lot and I realized I didn't like that. I did not like being pushed by someone else, especially my romantic partner. I'd end up in tears a lot. I'd end up in situations where I felt really out of control. I took a couple of years off of climbing and came back to it on my own terms, mostly climbing with women, although certainly not exclusively, and just with nothing to prove Mm -hmm. and leading on the sharp end what I felt comfortable in my own time. So I'd say that was the first stage. And then I had a paragliding accident when I was 25 where I smashed my pelvis and broke my back and had seven months in a wheelchair. And that gave a lot of Mm -hmm. time for reflection, Mm -hmm. specifically asking the question, what is the risk versus the reward of certain activities and choices in my life? Mm -hmm. Climbing still fell on the side of that. I feel for myself, the reward was still higher than the risk, but there are a lot of different ways to choose to climb. And on the scheme of things, I, I mean, perception might tell differently, but I feel like I'm pretty conservative. Well, perception aside, right? I think that they're, they're right. I mean, and I'm sure that the, your approach to risk management, risk mitigation has changed now that you're a mom, obviously not a fresh mom, but that must have evolved during this time as well. Definitely. Yep. And now that you, your then 13 year old climbed Zodiac and you wrote an article for Patagonia about that, that was the first time a mother daughter team had done that? To my knowledge, I think so. Pretty sure. Yeah. And that sounded like that was a, um, an experience that really sort of pushed a different envelope as well about you approaching something that was super challenging. You're totally prepared for, but still had to sort of fight those doubt demons. Yeah, as I had written about, and just to clarify, I actually, that was that so-called article. The way that came about is after we successfully climbed El Cap, my daughter Clypey and I and our friend Miranda, the next morning I woke up very early and grabbed my journal, which I hadn't been journaling regularly, but I grabbed my journal and with like sobs and sobs that just came straight out of my heart. And it was like basically so much relief 
that we hadn't gotten hurt, that my daughter didn't get hurt. Mm -hmm. It was amazing because I don't, I don't write professionally at all. And I don't consider myself a great writer, but the, the journal entry that came out was so authentic and therefore beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I ended up sharing it with friends. And one of my friends was connected with Patagonia and just pretty much took it like it was. I didn't even edit it at all. Mm -hmm. I had climbed that same route when I was 24. It was my first El Cap route. I mean, looking back, I think I was completely ill-equipped. Although most people who climb El Cap or a lot of people who climb El Cap wouldn't necessarily be more prepared than I was at that point. But now I would never (laughs) approach that climb with that level of experience and preparation, actually. Deciding to revisit it with my daughter felt completely different. It was all about preparation and Mm -hmm. dedication, actually, and just feeling as completely prepared as I could be and that she could be as well so that we felt as safe as possible. And then actually, I had a good friend, Eric Sloan, who one of the guidebooks for Big Walls here, and he was a mentor during that preparation process. And I talked to him the night before and I was still very anxious. And through the course of that conversation, you know, he was just like, you have done everything you can do. You have to just walk through that door and, Mm -hmm. and let go. And it was, that was part of it. And then just walking up to the climb that morning, all of a sudden I just felt the joy. Mm. And it was so fun. It was such a treat to get to share it with my daughter and girlfriend, Miranda. So did you, you felt like it was, you sort of got in the flow after you let go of checked your anxiety. 100%. Yeah. And then you just were, we're in it and like, let's, let's do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I imagine being in Yosemite and having so many friends in the community and climbing big walls, you do no loss. Wonder how you, how you process that. And maybe you said that in the way that you, when you had your own accident, you sort of check in with yourself about the risk reward trade-off, but I wondered how you process that. When um, I had someone very close to me die when I was in my 20s, I came up with a theory that helped me through my own grief. And my experience supported the theory, which is that each of us, that we grieve as individually as we are humans. Like we all grieve and process through that in a completely different way. And somehow, and I'm, I'm not really sure why this is, I might point to my experience in the Himalaya, actually, and mm. the Hindu philosophy. But for me, with my friends and lovers' deaths, I've somehow felt like when someone goes, it's their time to go. Mm-hmm. Somehow that feels comforting to me. And it doesn't mean that we as individuals can just take unnecessary risk and that's all okay because it's just when it's our time, it's our time. I don't, I, because every moment is so precious that we want to, of course, be as careful as we can so that we get to Mm -hmm. enjoy and embrace every moment. I remember after my, my, I went, moved through when I lost my fiance when I was 25 and I came back to the Valley that week. And I didn't know if I was going to still want to climb 
And I was kind of hoping I wouldn't because wouldn't that be a lot of extra time and energy? <laughs> it would be great. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the cliffs and just feeling the inspiration being in the valley. And it's like, yeah, I still want to climb. Mm-hmm. So it's a way I really feel joy and alive. And it's still home too. And it's still home. Yeah, through it all. Yeah. And you, when you were in Nepal and that, and you've returned to that area, to India as well, yoga became, seems to be, seems to have come up increasingly important part of your life and your approach. How did that factor into your stage through your 20s and 30s? Well, after I had my accident and I was healing, then my fiance died about nine months later. And about six months after that, I started experiencing severe and enduring pain, nerve pain that was completely debilitating. I was young, I was healthy, I was doing everything I could do. And so inevitably, I got incredibly scared and depressed. Like, how, what's this going to be like when I'm 70? You know, if this is now, and in my mind, I thought that was from because my pelvis, I have a bunch of screws in my pelvis and I'm screwed together crooked. So I was like, oh, well, I'm now imperfect. My structure is imperfect. So of course I have pain. But through some wisdom keepers in my life and Hmm. some amazing books, I learned that my pain, my physical pain was a result of my repressed emotions and grief from losing my fiance. And that even though structurally I am imperfect and I have screws through my sacrum, et cetera, that doesn't mean I have to experience physical pain. So I'm telling you this (laughs) nutshell of a story because that lesson about the mind-body connection and the necessity of working to fully digest our experiences and our emotions for health that led me to Ayurveda and a deeper practice and a professionalism of yoga because it was such, I mean, it was such a profound learning for me. And it's really hard for me to not want to share that actually because right. we none of us want to see people in pain and so many of us. Mm-hmm. I'm one of those people, if I experience something really exciting or profound or life-changing, the first thing I want to do is turn to the person next to me and be like, you got to learn about this. I don't want to say mind over matter because that sort of simplifies it, but there's more to physical pain than, you know, the sort of the physiology. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, in a nutshell, call it the mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. It's always curious. There has to be a part of sort of being stoic and stoicism to carrying on in a way. And you know, you and I grew up with a grandmother that was incredibly stoic and you could say our mothers have their their um, bit of it as well. And I'm wondering how you sort of have a soft center and also have, I don't want to say the armor to go through life, but the durability to, to go through hard things and process. I, how do I have that? How do we all have that? Well, yoga teaches me and us. And when I say yoga, I don't just mean like doing triangle pose. 
but the practice of observing, listening in the biggest sense of the word, listening and paying attention like afresh again and again and again. I guess when I witness what is, it's really soft <laughs> and um, spacious. That sounded so esoteric. It's so hard to talk <laughs> about this stuff. It's impossible to find words for it. like a total freak. <laughs> like a woo-woo, right? Totally sounding woo-woo, but <laughs> here I am all out for my cousin. <laughs> I love it. I totally love it. I mean, I say that in, in the question, it's a, it's a little obtuse, but, you know, I, you know, we sort of straddle, in a sense, the world we come from and the world we, and the person we want to become. And we make decisions somewhat consciously about, you know, moving towards or away from our traits that, you know, may have come handed down. And that's one I think about a lot is sort of stoicism and the benefits of that, you know, especially in times that are such as that we're in right now in the world when it's in some ways putting on blinders is very helpful and putting one step in front of the other. But at the same time, digging your head in the sand and is clearly not healthy. And, and I would think that you would argue that it creates a sort of sense of repression that your body, who has such a memory for everything, doesn't forget. And it's just at this moment in time, I'm just really aware of that, but about stoicism and being tough and also being soft and somehow holding both of that simultaneously. And There's like, there's repression and then there's expression or kind of letting all those emotions out all the time. And then there's maybe the middle path, which is transformation, actually. So I'm not saying I'm always able to do that, <laughs> but what I notice when I am able to just be with my emotions, that then they inevitably change and transform. Like mm -hmm. they don't, they're not stuck. And so like, you know, right now, I, I'm so glad you brought up right now, life right now and how whew, so overwhelming and anxiety producing. And I'm glad because I am also experiencing anxiety right now, like I think a lot of us are. But I'm glad I have the experience to know that just be with it and it will change too. Mm -hmm. Like it's not stuck. Yeah, I can hear that. I can feel that. It's um, sort of like the river passing over us and it'll change or the weather or the clouds, whatever it is. Yeah. God, but I'm supposed to be talking about all these hardcore things and instead... Oh, no, 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 no. The soft part. It's a, like, how can you be hard if you're not soft? I mean, that's, what, you know, that's like the, that's the question. <laughs> Tell me more about um, Balanced Rock. And I know that, and sort of its origin, its origin being Wild Women workshops back in the day and sort of that evolution. I've always been curious about that. Balanced Rock is a, currently is a, a nonprofit based in Yosemite. and. Our mission is to inspire health and well-being through deep connection to nature and spirit. And we offer programs, backpacking, yoga teacher trainings, just hikes in Yosemite. The origin, uh, yeah, our name used to be Wild Women Workshops, but we got 
way too many bad Google searches. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> <for> that <left. laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I did not realize that. <laughs> so Wild Woman Workshop, which was founded 21 years ago now, wow. came from a horrible tragedy. So one of our co-workers at Yosemite Institute, our friend Joey Armstrong, she was murdered here in Yosemite. This is a really tight-knit community of, I'm going to speak about the women in particular, although this, speak, this is the same of the men, but very like strong-minded women who aren't afraid to go out in the wilderness by themselves. And, and we, no one has any locks on their doors. Mm-hmm. And so it was like it would be in any community, but it was the only time I've experienced it. And this community has experienced it in that way. It was so completely, not only devastating, but it just left us so afraid, shaken and vulnerable. I remember like not being able to go to the bathroom by myself for weeks. My dear friend, one of my dearest, dearest friends, Heather Sullivan, And another friend of ours, Tana, got the idea to offer one trip for local women in this community to go on. This was about nine months after Joey's murder. So the trip was going to be to go into the backcountry together, to write together, to practice yoga together, and to heal and reclaim our joy. Specifically in the aftermath of our, our, the loss of Joey. Mm-hmm. And I was the yoga instructor. <laughs> so we had this first Wild Women Workshops trip. It was partially funded by the Yosemite Institute and a grant they have. And it was so incredible. It was everything we needed and more. We found our deep belly laughs again. We found our inner sense of faith and strength, and we just felt the deep bonds of girlfriendness and community, and how mm-hmm. we're there together, healing and celebrating life, actually. Mm-hmm. So it was so exceptional. And one of the women on the trip, another dear friend, Marsha, she was like, You have to keep doing this. This is an incredible combination, the writing, the yoga, being in the backcountry together with a group of women is so profound. So you have to form a nonprofit. <laughs> and so we got out our, I mean, we had no experience and just totally had these hilarious Xerox top pink flyers for our next course. And it was seriously grassroots and seriously fun, really fun. So 20 years later, we're all professional now, but it still has the same authentic components. And I'm so like proud to say that I really feel like everybody who comes on the Balanced Rock trips feels that same healing, transformational joy, whether it, you know, it might be from a different, obviously it's from a different experience and starting place, but we all have need to feel those things. 
So that's Bounce Rock in a nutshell. Oh, gosh. It sounds like there's so much impact that originated from sort of a very personal solution to a really traumatic event. And I imagine the the ripple effect of those types of trips is is huge, both the community part, but also just bonding with, you know, the women. And at what point did you change? What was the reason for changing the name? I mean, it, well, for one, we wanted to welcome men <laughs> into this powerful experience. And part of us loved the name Wild Women Workshops. And there was mm-hmm. a part of us that realized if we wanted this to be an enduring Mm-hmm. project we needed to professionalize a bit so we felt like that balanced rock was a more professional name and the name balanced rock actually comes again from joey armstrong a friend who was killed she used to balance rocks in the river and make like mm. rock sculptures and she was teaching our friend heather how to do that during the time period when she died so that's where the name comes from Wow. And now you have, I would say, next phase of the project or is, is Moonstone separate? It's all so interrelated, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, my role at Balanced Rock now is on the board. I'm a volunteer instructor and I'm a donor. And I'm, I mean, I'm really engaged and involved on a volunteer basis. And my husband, Nate, and I, just last week, sorry, last month, completed a life, I mean, really like almost a lifelong dream for me to create a retreat center, a small scale retreat center right outside the gates of Yosemite, which is, I feel so fortunate to have acquired this really special piece of land on the Merced River. So we've just finished building what essentially is a extremely beautiful and unique house and a separate yoga studio that is for about 30 people that can be used for all sorts of things, not just for yoga, but it truly feels like the structure and place that is worthy of being a launch pad to experience Yosemite because that's Hmm. hard to come by around here, a place where you can actually quality organic food and have like experiences together with your family and friends and an intimate private setting that is not as beautiful as Yosemite, but at least attempts to to be as beautiful as Yosemite in architecture. So yeah, that's the Moonstone Retreat. Congratulations. That's really awesome. I can't wait to come over. I can't wait for you to come either. Right? One thing that we haven't talked about that I feel like has threaded through, or we haven't dug, taken a deep dive into, that's been threading into your life for at least a decade or two, is your Ayurvedic practice. I wondered if you could speak to the origins of that and what you're doing now and any advice you have to for the layperson in your practice. Sure. So Ayurveda, just for some of you who might not be familiar with that word, it describes a holistic approach to wellness. It's an ancient way of life and system of medicine from India, about five to 10,000 years old. It incorporates herbs and diet and spiritual practice, lifestyle. 
So I um, went to school for that almost 25 years ago now in California and New Mexico and India. And I practice it similarly to like if you were to go see naturopath similarly, whereas I have clients who just come to see me for consultations for the whole gamut. Like some people just, hey, could you give me some tips about how to eat better? Other people have serious chronic challenges. And then I also specialize in what's called panchakarma. And panchakarma is an Ayurvedic cleanse and retreat that is in whole about a month long, but you typically would go and into a retreat like setting for about a week, ideally at minimum, and then have a practitioner care for you and love and nurture you by cooking for you and giving you all sorts of Ayurvedic bodywork, including warm oil massage, steam treatments, have them guide you in private yoga, meditation, and pranayama. It sounds like just it's luxurious. And I don't think of it as luxurious at all. I think about it as completely essential, actually. Because it is a crazy world we live in. And Ayurveda recommends that we take time annually, just like nature takes time annually to like, after there is death to cleanse and rebirth. So it's a time to draw inward, slow down, turn off the technology for a bit restore the nervous system and digestive system. And it's so rewarding working with people because they commit a lot to do this. They're so dedicated and thus they receive a lot. It's uh, deeply restorative. So that will be part of the Moonstone retreat is that clients can come to this beautiful setting and have an Ayurvedic practitioner love them. Hmm. <laughs> that sounds really transformative. Yeah. Even just hearing yeah. about it, I feel like I'm, you know, starting to like shed off some of the the layers. Says the mother of three. Yes. <laughs> ay, 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 right. I need to come for a panchacharma. 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 <laughs> yeah. Panchacharma. <laughs> Clearly I do. The other aspect of your life and your passions is on the water. We wanted to make sure we talked about surfing a little bit and you don't need to say why, but I'd love to hear the why. And just the, what kind of where that takes you, not necessarily literally, but also just figuratively. Well, it's so funny because when you were asking me about still wanting to climb and I was like, yeah, even after all that loss, I still wanted to climb. And But the truth is... <laughs> <laughs> If I lived near the warm waters, I would be really happy to hang up my harness. <laughs> you could change your allegiance very easily. What do I love about surfing? I, mm. well, it's really challenging. And I've figured out that I like doing things that are really challenging, actually. And it's so hard to practice as much as I want because you, there's always like, you never have enough waves. <laughs> it's like, when's the next perfect wave coming? I like that I can go out by myself, actually. I like that part. And on my own 
schedule and my own terms, choose my wave size. It's just fun. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels good on the body. Where are some of the your favorite places that you've that you've gone or you go back repeatedly? I would say Hanalei Bay is my favorite mm-hmm. spot. I've had the great fortune of spending a fair amount of time there and so beautiful. And the lineup is really friendly for the most part, which I mm-hmm. appreciate a lot. People feel seems like they feel so grateful to just be there and be able to enjoy the ocean. So that's the prevailing attitude, which I really appreciate. Mm. You sort of just, you have the climbing and the surfing and there really isn't any, well, is there geographic overlap? Are there places that you could be that, or that you've been that don't require hours driving from one to the other? I'm sure there are, but not in my experience have I done that. Yeah. Do you have any advice for your younger self? I guess we just have to go through all the pressure we put on ourselves when we're younger. But I remember a good five years in my 20s being so in turmoil about what I was going to do to make the world a better place and to be so deserving of this privilege of one, just being embodied, just being here at all. And two, I mean, I've just been born into such an incredible life with so much abundance. And I'm not saying I don't still feel some of that pressure, but I've, I just feel like we just, we do the best we can every moment and starting with just to enjoy every moment and be kind. That's really all we have to do Mm -hmm. is just try to be kind and grateful. So I guess that's what I'd say. Like, yeah. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Yeah. Are you reading anything that you would recommend? Well, I go in waves and phases. And right now, actually, this has been a long phase. Maybe this is the phase for the rest of my life of just like joy. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm exclusively reading novels and I love reading novels so much. Yeah, I just finished Shogun for the second time. And actually, one of the things I love about Shogun, which takes place in Japan in the 16th century, the Japanese are so gracious. And so I feel like Mm. I try to fake it till I make it. Well, after reading Shogun, I was like, I want to be more like that. So I've been trying to be more gracious. I love it. When you started climbing and sort of developing your mission personally, social media wasn't a thing. You've spoken of the importance of detaching, detaching from technology. And I wonder how you, what's the boundaries that you have with social media are probably bigger than most these days. And you, aren't one to be posting this or that or keeping score of of what you're doing. In fact, sort of the opposite, which is notably different, I think, than the way people approach a lot of the adventure things that you do now. 
And do you have any thoughts about that? And does that ever, I mean, in, I would think at this point in time, that has to actually be a conscious opt out. I don't want to say strategy, but approach because there's just so much online. But how do, how do you navigate that? And are you ever tempted to post more or is it really, you just have the clarity about that? I mean, I want to be clear that it's not out of any like righteousness <laughs> that I don't participate. It's, I mean, I'm just doing what I have to do to stay as sane and grounded as I can be during this time in life. So I have, I have never been on any social media platforms, but I still have to navigate technological addiction. Like I think everybody, except for maybe my husband, seems to navigate. And for me, the antidote to my phone, basically, and the compulsion to be texting or emailing on my phone, the antidote to that is physical activity in nature. It is definitely the elixir for me. It, it just, and I've stopped feeling apologetic about it. It's like when, um, when the shutdown started with COVID and for the first time in my life, I was definitely feeling some physiological anxiety. I was like, oh, this is what this feels like. And getting outside every day for some serious physical activity was the only way to navigate that for me. Mm -hmm. so I'm just doing what I need to do and I support whatever tools people find for themselves to navigate it. I really respect and always have your ability to be confident about your needs. And I know it's not, you know, it might not be as clear from the inside as it is from the outside, the way it's perceived, but you know, you've had opportunities to, you know, move, for instance, but you find your home in a small town, small community, keeping it simple. And I think that threads a lot of choices that you have, including your approach to social media. It was sort of a question that, you know, has a, your answer to that question, actually, it reflects a lot of ways that you approach your life. And I think that's really beautiful. And I learned a lot from it. So thank you. You're right in that there hasn't been, there have been times of internal conflict and guilt around that. I mean, specifically around climbing, actually, because it's really time consuming climbing, especially in Yosemite. A lot of the routes are long. I had the amazing pleasure to climb the nose in a day with Sean Leary, who's was one of my heroes, and I had to train really hard for it. This is when I was 40. I remember my daughter, this is the classic quote, my daughter saying, Mama, when are you going to stop climbing on the nose and start being home to make me breakfast in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's guilt at that level, just of course, with my own family. And then there's guilt on a, a with the civilization as a whole, like I could be putting all that time and energy towards other altruistic things. I guess where I keep coming back to again and again and again is if I am not grounded and at least mostly in a 
peaceful, balanced place, I can't do anything for anyone else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes me having to be gone all day on the rocks to be in that state of balance. Mm. Gosh, thanks, Liz. Thank you, Sylvia. I feel like there are a lot of lot of nuggets in our conversation. I um, need to make sure that I ask how listeners can find all of your offerings from your Ayurveda to Moonstone and Balanced Rock. Thank you. I'm so not the best marketer, so I appreciate this opportunity to share. Well, Balanced Rock is balancedrock.org. My Ayurveda practice is elizakerr.com. We are not yet live, but it will be, I believe, Yosemite Moonstone Retreat or some such iteration of that. Awesome. Can't wait. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.